Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 70. That is boggling my mind. 70 podcast episodes for you guys on the podcast. How about that? (laughs) I'm genuinely kind of amazed. Hey, this episode here is super, super powerful. Very, very precious discussion. Stephanie Tate is an author and speaker on a number of subjects surrounding disability, suffering, wholeness. She's an advocate for many. She's a mom. She's a trauma survivor. There's a whole bunch that that she brings to the table. I read her book, The View from Rock Bottom. It really moved me. And this conversation is one of the most intimate, precious conversations I've had in this space. Uh, I, I would put this in the category of whoever you are, please listen to this. Uh, Whatever your issues are or aren't, there's something in here for you. Please take your time. We talked about wholeness, about suffering, about ableism, systems of power and domination, how disabilities fit into the church. But I tell you, there, there is so much in here. I really, really would urge you to take the time and listen to this entire thing and be prepared to have your heart opened up. So I'm going to get out of the way and we'll we'll jump right in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Let's uh, listen to Stephanie Tate. I actually think I actually think in a way it's easier for people that come from any kind of charismatic background to more clearly grab on and recognize prosperity gospel ideas in the ways they were taught and in the theology they were given. I think it's a lot harder for a lot of people from slightly more conservative evangelical backgrounds. Um, Mm. You know, I I did not grow up in a church with Pentecostal leadings. I came from a branch um, called the Conservative Baptist Association that, you know, you hear about the SBC, the Southern Baptists and all their, you know, issues in the news. We broke off from them because they weren't conservative enough for us. So it was... um, we definitely had no Pentecostal leadings. I think I, I mentioned at one point in the book, you know, growing up for us, the Holy Spirit, it was like a, a spiritual Jiminy Cricket, if you will. Like the conscience that sits on your shoulder and says, don't do bad things. And other than that, we didn't really acknowledge the Spirit much at all. And we were, if anything, very wary of faith traditions that were more Pentecostal and engaged with the spirit, um, the idea of speaking in tongues or faith healings or good Lord, like we hardly swayed or moved or raised our hands, you know, during worship for most of my, my childhood years. Mm -hmm. Um, the church has grown and and moved in some of those areas since then, but, but that was very much the tradition I grew up in. So for people who come from that kind of background, I think it's easier to fall into the trap of thinking, well, the prosperity gospel, you know, that's, that's Bethel. That's that's those places, right, where they've got healings going on in the front and gold falling from the sky or whatever. We we don't we don't do that here. Yes. Which was part of why so much of the beginning of the book was me wanting to lay the groundwork for this understanding that I've come to that I think a majority, an overwhelming majority, if not all, of mainstream evangelical faith traditions are just steeped in prosperity gospel theology. Mm. We just don't call it that. Yes. We don't we don't think that's a problem we have 
And I think that's sort of a natural human problem, whatever the problem may be, to to look at sort of cases that are worse or more extreme and say, oh, well, at least I'm not them. <laughs> I don't have sure. that issue. That's that's what those people do. We don't have that problem. And so you lack that extra layer of self-examination to say, but don't I though? Don't, when I really dig in, don't I have that same underlying transactional view of God? That if mm. I behave a certain way, he owes me a certain quality of life in return, and that that's sort of this unwritten deal we've made in the heavenly ledger somewhere that I have enough points to not go to the bad place, yes. <laughs> to not live the bad place in this life right now, because he's supposed to take care of the good ones. Yes. Um, so I think it's interesting when you say you have, you know, an audience that tends to come more from those charismatic backgrounds, because I don't think they struggle with that initial stronghold of, you have to recognize you even think that way in the first place sure. before you can deconstruct it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, for sure. Now that that makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, even as I as I read your book, so just for a little bit more context, I, I read it predominantly on my way to South Africa and while I was in Johannesburg working for two weeks in a very impoverished community, and. So in my in my eyeballs and my ears all around me all day long is suffering. Mm. And and while I've obviously been aware of all of that, it was the first time that I got boots on the ground in that space. So that was it was it was intense, right? And I would come back to my nice Airbnb at the end of the day behind walls and barbed wire fences. And I would sit there and try and process the things I'd seen and the privilege that I have. And then I would like, oh, I want to read and decompress. What am I reading right now? Oh, I'm reading this really <laughs> night, nice, oh, no. light, fluffy <laughs> oh, no. escapism. Oh, no. <laughs> and I would, and I would read about, about suffering. Oh, okay. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've told people my book is not a, like a beach read. Okay. <laughs> like you don't, you don't bring it poolside. <laughs> can confirm. Load for a little bit. <laughs> But if, oh, on the one hand, it felt like I have I have no sanctuary. But on the other hand, it was it was very very helpful. Just wow. as I walked along, and I recognized that those temptations right away. Like, oh, but surely not in my community. Like in my church community, it's a very safe place for for all kinds of people. Of course, it is right because I feel safe, and so it must be so safe for everyone. On, on getting back, I connected with a friend who's a member of our community and and has some major chronic pain issues and, and ongoing complicated health issues. And I said to him, can you help me understand what it's like in our community from your perspective, for you? For you? And, and we talked long into the night and I had to swallow some really hard truths, things that I didn't see because I don't see them until I enter someone else's pain. Right. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just sort of sitting with that. I, I'm sorry. I, it's, um, you know, you, you put something like this out into the world and you spent years pouring yourself into it sort of in the beginning, I can't speak for, you know, any other authors, but I know in the beginning, 
Um, I wrestled a lot with the feeling that, for lack of better words, that this would be boring, if you will, to other people because so much of it is wrapped up in my experiences and my perspective and and how that shaped my lens, not just on the theology of suffering, but just on my theology of God. And, and so especially choosing to open with a chapter that really has no obvious theology work that is essentially just memoir. Uh, my biggest fear was constantly, I'm going to lose people. This is this this is where I'll lose them. It, it's boring. Um, this is just my story. It's only interesting to me. And and you wrestle with that, and and you're trying to figure out how do I use my story as a springboard to make this theology put on flesh, if you will, to make it more accessible and more human, and to help people understand that theology is not just sort of these philosophical ideas in our head or debates in seminary classrooms that the theology that can't put on skin and walk around and be the people that we interact with is useless and and yes. pointless theology that if he didn't come to save human beings and interact with human beings and love these human beings then what are we doing with this but the fear is always do i have a story and can i present it in a way when you're not sort of a typical mainstream person, when you have sort of these niche identities that people can't always relate to, the fear is, is that going to be a stumbling block that keeps them from opening themselves up to the bigger truth of what I'm trying to say? Mm. So it's always really humbling and and almost shocking to me every time someone speaks uh, in specifics about the ways that reading my words and my story opened up this line of thinking for them. Mm. Because no matter how much you pour yourself into the work, sort of when you pull the trigger and put it out into the world, you have no way of knowing how it's going to land. For sure. And so I don't, I'm not at, you know, this is my first book. So I'm not at that place where I take for granted at all. Anytime someone tells me this moved me and I had some sort of powerful spiritual experience because of something you wrote, I I don't know how to come back or what to say because that's it's such a sacred powerful thing to hear that and I spent so long hoping that this would create space for people to do exactly that and to have these kinds of important deconstruction conversations about their own faith and their own theology of suffering but anytime someone tells me they've actually done that or that I've in any way been successful it's like my brain falls out and I, and I don't know what to say in response. I'm just really humbled and very aware of what a sacred, I use this word very carefully, but almost pastoral responsibility it is to hear that yeah. and, and to shepherd that sort of uh, connection well. Well, I can assure you that bored was not a word that entered into my mind as I read there were all kinds of things like, no, Stephanie, I'm done with this. I'm getting off here and then continue. <laughs> and I'm like, damn it. Oh, she's right. Um, or like, God, it can only be this way. Or like, <laughs> surely not in my community, as I already explained. But bored was never, never one of them. Um, hmm. So I can tell you for my part, I think you hit that balance straight down the center. 
But I know what you mean as a, as a writer. You, if you don't give any personal flesh, you, you risk, like you said about theology not being personal, but you, you, you risk uh, not allowing anybody to see themselves in the story. It's, you know hmm. what it's like? It's like when your house gets staged. If you have absolutely no furniture in the home, it's really hard for somebody else to, to imagine themselves living in your home. Yeah. But if you have absolutely all of your personal junk filling up every space, also people can't imagine themselves living there either. Right. So I feel like you curated your own stories in a way that allowed us to see your lived reality and why this matters to you in, enough that it may cause us to say, maybe this should matter to me. Maybe it already matters to a lot of people around me that I haven't had eyes to see. Hmm. Uh, that was that was my experience for my for my part. I think that's a big part of well. So my favorite chapter, quite possibly, it's kind of a toss up for me. And you're not really supposed to have a favorite, but I do. <laughs> I um, my favorites are really the seventh and eighth chapters. Uh, the seventh one was uh, cover your mirror. It's a chapter that really talked about. Jewish morning practices around sitting Shiva and what I learned through these concepts of communal grief, right? The idea that we belong to each other in our pain and that it's not an individualized experience and how we can learn from those traditions and find a way to use our pain as as sort of a springboard into our greatest passion, our greatest calling, if you will, mm. and point us back to each other instead of turning us further inward. But the eighth chapter is an interesting beast. Uh, the eighth one was called uh, The Declaration of Interdependence. Mm. And the eighth one was very interesting because that's not what was on the outline that I had originally turned in with my book proposal. Um, that was actually supposed to be the last chapter. The ninth one on hope wasn't even on the original outline and came later because I felt like I needed a bookend. I felt like I needed to communicate that what we don't want to do is just run to the other side of the pendulum, carrying all the same toxic baggage with us uh, and and give up on hope entirely and just run to cynicism and, and claim just like the prosperity gospel that we have suffering all figured out and that it has its place and we have it all sorted. So we don't have to worry about this anymore. Mm -hmm. I wanted to throw a little mystery and a little doubt and a little room for, for searching back in there with that chapter on hope. But the eighth chapter was supposed to be uh, something about living authentically, or I, I don't entirely remember, to be honest. Um, and as I came to write it, I felt really strongly that one of the big mistakes I did not want to make was letting anybody walk away with this new theology of suffering, thinking that this was somehow an individual issue that they could work out in their own heart, in their own life, in their own theology, without stepping back for a minute and thinking about the systems mm that we live in and the way that our personal theologies ultimately affect the way we treat other people and the societies that we form and the rules that we make for what we owe to each other as neighbors. Yeah. And so, so much of that last, that that eighth chapter was really about me trying to keep my story in the preceding chapters before it from becoming a stumbling block to anyone who might think, well, that's so great. 
for someone like her. Like that's so great for disabled people or chronically ill people or people who have miscarriages or whatever part of my story you could sort of latch onto and say, this is for people like that. Isn't that great that they have that? I have a friend I should give this book to because they're chronically ill or they're, I wanted a chapter that said this matters because we don't live in a vacuum and your theology doesn't exist in a vacuum. The things you think about God and the things you believe will affect and inform the ways we treat other people and any theology that we want to bring on or let go of in deconstruction, right? Any, any theology that we're reconsidering, Yes, you have to take time to examine it personally, but it's all for naught if we don't also step back and then say, but how does this play in in systems? How does this play on the human level in, in societies and what we owe to each other and the communities that we build together? Yes. So it's helpful for me to hear that that you didn't find all of it so tightly wrapped up in my own personal story that it was easy to sort of step back and go, I think that's great for her, but that doesn't really have anything to do with me or my faith community or my secular community or any of us because we are not disabled or chronically ill or whatever label you chose to assign it all to, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Now, I remember getting to the end of, of chapter eight and uh, and being like, oh, I need I need my our whole pastoral team to read this. I need to get this to to my pastors, I need to get like our whole community need to digest this. We need to incorporate this into our DNA. So mm-hmm. for those who are listening and are like, okay, great. You guys have talked for 10 minutes about this other book that we haven't <laughs> read yet. Let's, 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 let's push bit. this down a little bit uh, into, into, into the dirt and the mud in a good way. Uh, I think I, what I would say is, is, you know, for for those listening, Stephanie opens up her book with with this broad discussion on on faith and how how so often we've treated faith like like God, like this genie in a bottle, and as long as we kind of do our 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 part, then God gives us back His part. And I think there's probably a lot of us who have already kind of yeah yeah we're calling BS on on a lot of that, especially that space where it's like, oh, you just need to have more faith. And then you'll be yeah. healed. Oh, you've probably got secret sin in your life. Or if you tie the hundred dollars, you oh, get a exactly. thousand back this week. Yeah. Yeah. Like those are the obvious ones. Yeah. So I thought you did a really great job. I think I think that uh for a lot of us that's gonna be territory we're we're familiar with. And I thought you 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 handled that well. Uh as as we really get into your framework on suffering, I think I was well, let's let's continue with with this this around chapter eight because this is where I sat down with my friend, and one of the things he sort of said right away was, "Well, we do a lot of prayer for healing in our community. Mm-hmm. We believe that Jesus healed people, and he said, these works and greater you'll do in my name.' So for us, that's as simple as it goes. We don't know how it works, <laughs> but we ask." Uh, but he said, what happens sometimes is the way certain people carry themselves, there's almost like a look in their eyes when you don't bound up out of the chair and go, yes, I got it. I feel great. That it makes it feel like it's my fault. Or mm. it makes it feel like my story's not valid until I'm healed. 
Yes. Or like those people who you mm. give the microphone to to come up and share a testimony. It's only once it's all tied up nicely with a bow and the suffering is over. Yes. That a platform is given to that story. Mm. And that one really hit home for me. I was like, oh, you're talking to Jonathan Puddle right now. <laughs> I I have been guilty of thinking in those terms. Uh and that was very convicting for me. How how does that how has that played out for you? Like, can you open our eyes a little bit to what that's like? Yeah. What's interesting, of course, is so the book came out in August, and we're recording in January. So it's been out for almost half a year. And, you know, as an author, you understand that means I finished writing the book like, you know, almost a year before that. So it uh this has been an ongoing process for me since I finished putting, you know, the final dot on the I and crossing the T on that chapter. This isn't like something that I figured out and I wrote about it and I put it out there and then I moved on with my life and it doesn't apply to me anymore. It's very much a, a present tense process for me. I still have a very complicated relationship with faith healings. Um, I wrote in the final chapter of the book uh, a story of me wrestling with God very tangibly over a service that was asking me to open myself up to the possibility of faith healing and not wanting to be open to that, wanting the comfortable cynicism of knowing, well, that's just not how it works. And I've moved beyond that. And aren't I so spiritually mature? Because I know that he doesn't heal me and my story and I've come to terms with that. And that's great. And having to dig down deep in my motives and discover that, you know, not speaking for anybody else here, but entirely for my story, that in my case, it wasn't at all an issue of maturity or acceptance. It was full-blown cynicism. It was that same desire for control that leads people to prosperity thinking of knowing if I do X, then I know what the outcome's going to be. For me, it was just doing it in reverse, that it was easier to know. I don't pray for healing. I don't do those sorts of things anymore. Heck, I don't, at one point, I don't pray for anything in specifics anymore. I just say, your will be done. And that's so mature and wonderful and in reality, it was me knowing then I don't have to deal with the mystery over and over again. I don't have to deal with the possibility that I might not get healed and have to wrestle through all the implications of that. It's easier to just shelve it entirely and not let that be part of my life. And so now I walk in a much more confusing place, uh, which is interesting because so much of my faith upbringing was bathed in these ideas of certainty, of black and white, of, you know, absolute truth means that you know that this is true and that's it and it's certain and questions are wrong. They're, they're the devil. Don't, don't give in to doubt. Don't give in to ideas of tolerance or considering other points of view. Just stand firm and be so sure and certain of everything we've told you because you know it's right and that's the end of it. So the idea of moving forward in my faith journey, not backwards at all, meaning coming into this place that's more confusing and has more questions and more mystery and less certainty. That's very new for me. Mm. Uh, but I 
I struggle constantly with the balance between those two sides that, yes, I do believe that God is big enough, that healing is possible, and that I'm not discounting stories of people who say that that's been their experience. On the flip side, I have to figure out how to hold that with a very open hand and the knowledge that there is no magic formula for for getting that. There is no way to earn faith healing by, by going through enough of the right steps in a certain order or having enough faith or being obedient enough or none of it. And, and that bigger than that, that there is no failure or shame in being a disabled person who exists mm. in a disabled body and who is not healed. Mm. That, that asking for healing is not asking for wholeness, that it's mm. not asking to be made complete. It's not asking to be restored or to find a way to be usable in the kingdom of God or, or, you know, Right. For to find value, that asking for healing can be compartmentalized for purely what it is. That it's simply that it's not fun living life in pain. And that there are things about my life that are far more challenging and difficult because of disability. Sure. And that much like Christ in the garden and the story that I connected to so deeply of him saying, I don't want to do this. If there's another way, could we do it that other way? Can we brainstorm on this one? Because really, is this the only way we can accomplish this? I I relate with that. Mm-hmm. That for me is so much the attitude that I approach faith healing now of, wow. I don't really love this. I'm not thrilled about it, God. And I know you can handle hearing that. I understand now there's nothing sacrilegious or loss of faith or lack of obedience in me saying, I'm not super thrilled about your what appears to be your plan. Could we could we not do this? Yeah. And yet having to hold that in that loose hand enough of finishing that thought with Christ's thought of, but in the end, you know, not my will but yours be done. It's okay. If you say no, but that doesn't mean I have to pretend that I'm cool with it or that that was yeah. my preferred outcome. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. kind of where I, I stand right now. And I, I hate that that answer is so all over the place and so confusing, but that's the reality of the space that I'm living in. You know, like I don't have a neat bow to wrap up on that for people anymore. I cannot give you a TED Talk version of the proper place of faith healing in modern faith. You know, I I don't know. I'm still wrestling that out on a day-to-day basis. I really don't have clarity on that issue, but I also think that that's a much healthier place than when I did. Mm. Okay, I've just had like a major (laughs) aha while as you're explaining all that to me. I'm trying to figure out how to vocalize what's going on in my head and my heart Okay, something what you what you said there about Okay, bear with me. Christ mm-hmm. in the garden. If we can see him as whole, like fully God mm-hmm. and fully man, and also fully saying time out, not my first choice. Can we find another way forward? 
can we just apply the same picture to anybody and everybody in our community, regardless of what I would see as their health status and say, okay, you're whole. Yes. You are fully human. This is Mm -hmm. the full beauty of who you are. You're allowed to say, can we find another way that this pain isn't a part of my life, that uh, I don't have to do anything with whatever the particular difficulties that somebody faces. I don't, I don't think I really understood the ableism of my own language until mm. about 45 seconds ago. I think there is something profound in coming to this conversation, not necessarily from the perspective of the person who's going up to the front asking for healing or who's being the object uh, you know, of the the people coming over them and can I pray for you and can I lay hands on you? But being in the perspective of the person who's doing the prayer, um, I love hearing you make those connections because uh, as I'm sorting out how to how to grapple with the role of faith healing, the reality is as a disabled person, um, I have less power. And, and, and less privilege in that situation than the, than the abled person who feels like, I'm going to go heal someone. Isn't this great? <laughs> like, I'm going to do this big, powerful, supernatural thing for you. And you're going to be so excited to receive it. And it's very frustrating for people that come from, and I'll name names, that come from contexts like Bethel's, right? Who go to places like their supernatural school of ministry and who think it's totally appropriate to go up to a random stranger on public transportation and be like, I'm going to heal you from your wheelchair today. And as a disabled person, it's a little easier for me to look at that and go, there are about 25 consent issues that I could list off right off the top of my head with that scenario. But the question people leave me with that I always struggle with is how, how is, how should they approach them then? Like, should, are are, there, are you saying that they need to just give up on faith healings and never offer that again? Or, you know, how is it appropriate? And I think you've hit the nail on the head in your questions and your, your line of thinking here of, it's not so much, should we stop offering faith healing? But the question is, what is your motive And where is your thought process at when you approach someone to make that offer? When you have that altar call and you say, I'm going to be the one who puts their hand on you and does this huge supernatural thing. My number one question for you is take a minute and think really hard about all of the people in that disabled person's life, that disabled person included, who have probably pleaded. I mean, think about my mom, right? And how many hours she has probably spent on her knees begging God to not make me live in this pain, Mm. right? Right. So why is it, person who's putting their hand on me in front of this whole audience, why is it that you think your calling is to be the one to suddenly, you know, be a part of this enormous miracle, if you will? And more than that, ask yourself. If you were to just sit silently (laughs) in your pew and let me sit in mine and you really felt called that somehow you were having a supernatural experience where you felt like the spirit was clearly telling you, I want this woman to be healed. What is to stop you from sitting exactly where you are in your pew, not saying a word to me personally, and just praying to be a part 
of that healing moment for me without without (laughs) being visibly in front of everybody, right? And most people don't like that. They're very, well, well, that's not the same. That's not, okay, then this has a lot more to do with your motives then than my healing. Stephanie, the Holy Spirit says that to me. Every time I'm like in a prayer group, okay? Yeah. Like, okay, let's just move move healing aside. We're just getting ready for our for our meeting, and we've just gathered for a few minutes before everyone comes in. Okay? Okay. And we're just praying. We're just having a little, just a little time. And and I'm like, oh, I'm waiting for my turn to pray. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> and I've got it all lined up and rehearsed in my head. And I'm like, I can't wait till this person's done praying so I can pray. And then, and then Holy Spirit's like, tapping and that's my my internal voice is hyper masculine and uh and holy spirit's tapping on my heart and is like hey son so you like do you just want to pray now like you want to just pray like i'm listening Hmm. like i mean if you if you want to pray with your fancy voice you can like that's fine but like (laughs) you don't have to wait and i'm like uh, and I've never heard anyone vocalize that outside of my own private thoughts. Well, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm discounting that there is ever a time that you really are in a connected relationship with a person who is sick or who is disabled, that you really do feel spirits leading and that 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 can be a beautiful thing. I'm not trying to discount a role for any sort of altar call or faith healing as they exist. I merely think, again, that we don't exist in a vacuum, right? Mm. That we have to have these conversations with acknowledgement that as much as we are individuals, we exist in a communal and there are systems and structures that all of this is taking place in. And the reality is an abled person will always hold power and privilege in a situation that a disabled person does not. Whether we're talking about faith healing, whether we're talking about accessibility, it doesn't matter. Abled people hold more power and privilege in that situation. And as a result, it always needs to be approached from that perspective of, A, have I considered the wants and desires and feelings and consent of Mm. this disabled person? Or have they become sort of an object in this story where I'm always the subject, where I'm the main character in this event and they are there as the recipient Mm. of this supernatural experience. Because if we are always the object of the story and not the subject, that is a dead giveaway that this is not a theology that actually empowers or heals or connects me as a disabled person. It's one that isolates and excludes and dehumanizes me. And that's, that's not of God. I can say that very clearly with, with no uncertainty or mystery about it. That's not of God. I'll take a quick break to thank my Patreon supporters. I'm so thankful for all of you who chip in each month, who, who message me, who who are engaged in, in the Patreon community. There's a whole bunch of you. Mary is our my latest patron. Thank you, Mary. Every single one of you who gives means something to me. It, it really, it really, really does mean something to me. Folks, if you're not a Patreon supporter, would you consider going to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle? You can chip in for as little as $3 a month. And it helps keep the show on the air. It also just keeps me meeting people uh, all around the country. I met just last week. I was in Saskatoon, and I met uh, 
a wonderful, wonderful woman of God who I had met uh, through Instagram, uh, thanks to this work, and we got to spend some time over bubble tea. It was both of our first time having bubble tea, and uh, amazing to hear what God is doing in her work in Canada. So this this thing to me is is amazing that that you would chip in, that you would help me out, that you would support, that you would believe in the work I'm doing. I'm so privileged to get to do this work and talk to wonderful people like Stephanie right here and, and others. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It means so much. If you'd like to join, patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. And uh, head to jonathanpuddle.com for everything else. There's blogs, stuff. There's articles. Uh, there's a brand new devotional that's coming out really soon. You can learn more about that at jonathanpuddle.com slash D-E-V-O, Devo. It's uh, really, really coming together nicely. So let's get back to the show. I yeah. know that I serve a savior who, you know, I, I wrote a devotional about this once, that you see Christ come back after his resurrection, right? And he appears to his disciples. And we often hear that story as like, he's this guy with these little skin marks, if you will, like slight discolored dots on his hands to sort of show there had once been nails there. But otherwise, he's perfectly healed and whole in the way we like to think of it from an abled perspective. Mm. And yet, when you actually read the story, he's saying things like, please stick your fingers inside my gaping flesh wound, right? Like gouge your hand into my entire side, Thomas, because it's wide open and you're able to do that. That is not a body that came back healed. That is a body that went into the ground and came back out having defeated death and yet still bearing the very real wounds of the experience that he had just gone through. And as a disabled person, that was such a powerful story for me to recognize that in his glory, he was still wounded. So you cannot tell me that there is still not wholeness in my body as it exists right now. But more than that, that I am not a complete and total reflection of the glory of God now. Not someday when I get healed. Not don't worry in heaven. You won't need a cane anymore. Right now. Because I serve a Savior that came back wounded and that means something to me. Hmm. Stephanie, I don't know if this is going to feel appropriate, uh, so please just holler at me. But okay. I, I feel like I need to repent. Um, hmm. I, I, I think on the on the spectrum, I wouldn't be real far away, and certainly have seen the beauty in, let's say, every, everyone for lack of whatever. But the specific use, your usage of the word wholeness, I have not seen disabled people as whole. Hmm. And, and, I'm, and I'm feeling powerfully grieved. Um, and, and I would like to, I would like to apologize and, and, uh, and to say I'm seeing the, the wrongness of that. Um, I'm really sorry. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm <clears throat> a little bit of a mess over here now. Whew. Um, I think that's, um, 
first of all, thank you for saying that. But um, I think that's a powerful model for a lot of your listeners. And I'll just go ahead and name names and say a lot of your white male able listeners, especially of what it looks like to not to, to receptively listen and respond, right? To model from a place of, we talk a big game a lot in deconstruction communities about lament, but I don't see a lot of folks who are willing to model that real leadership, real lament comes from a place of repentance first, right? That there can't be a true mourning of the wrong that's been done if nobody considers themselves complicit in it. If it's just this miraculous they that exists out there somehow independent of any of us individuals. And that's the hardest part, I think, of the deconstruction journey. And I want to be very clear that as a white woman, I may be disabled and that absolutely makes me a marginalized person. I don't want to discount that. However, I am still white. <laughs> so I have my own issues of complicity that I have to continually examine and identify and repent of that it is so easy sometimes as we step out of some of these toxic evangelical systems we grew up in. It's so easy to point back and talk about they did this toxic thing. They promote that toxic theology. They, 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 without any acknowledgement of the role that we played mm -hmm. in not just receiving it, but furthering some of these toxic systems. And more than that, I say this as a white woman benefiting from those toxic systems of marginalization, benefiting from the marginalization of other people. And so when I see somebody like you who's willing to take a moment to not just say, wow, that was powerful, thanks for sharing, but say, wait a minute, I want to take a moment to acknowledge I was a part of that or I am a part of that and I have something I need to personally repent of rather than just collectively lament I think there's so much wisdom in that and it's a model that so many of us need to see in progressive spaces because I'm grateful to see so many more progressive Christian sp spaces springing up that are willing to, to do this hard deconstruction work that are willing to say, well, there were a lot of toxic things we don't want to perpetuate. And yet we're also not willing to go to the other extreme and throw the baby out with the bathwater and be done with our spirituality. So how do we do this hard, messy work of peeling away those layers with painful scalpel-like precision? And yet in those same spaces, this is the component that is so often lacking. People that are willing to step out of that dichotomy of the they systems and say, no, I was a part of that. And I still carry some of that. And I bear some of the complicity for that. And you deserve an apology for it. So I'm, I'm moved and I'm really touched and I'm grateful that you modeled what it looks like to respond with that personal acknowledgement instead of that easy, distant, they sort of lament. I I, I'm thankful for your grace. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, can I, I maybe, Whew, yeah. I, I've been, I think, I think it, 
I've been trying to understand a lot of these things, like my complicitness in these systems and, and, you know, it's like, do we need another white male podcast host? Lord <laughs> almighty. What am I even here for? Um, I think it was easier for me to understand. I'm just going to say it. I think it was easier for me to see and understand the wholeness of people of color because to my ableist eyes, there was nothing missing. Hmm. And so there was a whole bunch of stuff I had to go through, obviously, to enter into that journey. And, and I've learned so much from, from like white people like Cara Meredith opening that conversation up and help being a bridge builder to help us come into that space that she entered into, you know, marrying, marrying the son of a major civil rights movement figure. And then, and then talking to, to men and women of color and having my eyes be opened and traveling and seeing that. But I don't think for me, it was until just in this, this sacred moment here that you allowed me to enter into uh, where the penny dropped for me and understanding deeply and personally and painfully how complicit my thinking and language is and yeah surrounding what you may or may not be lacking and that word wholeness has broken me wide open inside and i wish i had words to describe the yeah yeah uh what's taking place inside me right now so i, I i'm rambling because i'm <laughs> just it's I, it's no it's it's authentic. And I think we often on shows like this feel like we're expected to make perfect sense of our answers in lightning time and with no silence to think and, and no, no stumbling pauses. Excuse me. Uh, anyways, I, I think it's beautiful, again, to see modeled an example of what this looks like in real spaces in real life, right? We, this is not a scripted conversation. We had no idea where we were going to go with this show. And yet, this is what it looks like to have these thoughts unfolding in real time and to be obediently responsive, right? You want to you wanna set an example. We're here talking about people who are like, well... I feel like the spirit's telling me to heal this person. And yeah, but this is what it looks like when the spirit asks you to do something in real time that is not so flattering or glamorous. This is what it looks like when the spirit asks you to say something where you go, I don't even know if this is going to make sense to anyone else, or this is going to make me look really silly. But here's a thing that popped into my head. Does this resonate with you? Mm. If not, that's cool. You can all stare at me awkwardly. That takes a different level of willingness to show up and follow and be obedient. And I don't see as much of that as I see the stories of people saying, well, but the spirit told me I could heal her, that she'd get up out of her chair and walk. And shouldn't I respond to that? And I I think it's a positive thing, again, to see what it looks like to be asked to practice some obedience that is a lot scarier and a lot more unflattering and that we don't always have a model of. Because mm -hmm. again, it circles back to what we said in the beginning about wanting testimonies, wanting leaders on the platform, wanting examples for us where we know all the whys and the hows, and it's all been wrapped up in a neat past tense bow. So you can see this little compartmentalized story and follow the steps so that you can achieve a similar outcome. 
And in reality, I think what the church needs so much more of, and my heart song for this whole book was the idea of present tense testimonies, that Mm. we are people in in process, that we don't have all the answers, that we don't have this false certainty of this is how God is, this is how he works, this is why he did this thing in my life, all of the reasons are here for you, now follow in my footsteps. We are a people in process who are saying, I've gotten some things really wrong, and I'm probably still getting some things really wrong, Mm -hmm. and here is my process so that you can learn from the mistakes that I'm making just as much as you learn from the areas where I've sorted things out Mm -hmm. so that we can do this together shoulder to shoulder rather than following someone who's up on a pedestal and, and we're three steps behind them trying to follow in their wake. Um, this is a much more powerful model, I think, of what the church could be if it would open itself up and learn how to share weaknesses and lack the way that we share strength and accomplishment. Mm, how about that? Okay. Say that once again, if we could <laughs> open Share up, yeah. our weaknesses and our lack the way that we share strength and accomplishment. Because the reality is we cannot just be a giant circle where everybody is a giver and nobody's there to receive because there won't be anyone to receive and the work of giving will end. And that's, that's the end of that. Like you're just sort of a pointless organization with no purpose, but mm. I see a body that's designed to be both, right? That we need both people who have something to share generously and people who are willing to humbly and openly receive it to keep that system going, to keep learning, to keep sharing, and to keep connecting with each other. Yes. Okay. I've talked with a number of pastors recently who they're all in the same kind of network and they have these calls on you know Zoom or whatever to kind of encourage one another, but it so often boils down to just kind of sharing their high watermark testimonies. Mm. Oh yeah, this is what's happening in my church, and and a couple of these people have been saying to me lately, it's not helpful. Like it feels like a waste of time to kind of brag in a circle. Like, like to, yeah, to to your point, like the suffering, the pain, the questions, the miss, the wrestling with the mystery, the uncertainty, the doubt, the be, the admission to being in process surely is a better opener and a better catalyst for healing and for community, for growth, Mm -hmm. for, for mutual edification. Well, and that's the only place where we really find intimacy with each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like as much as in the book, I tried to point towards That's how we find intimacy with Christ, that scripture tells us over and over again that we're communing with him in suffering, that we're sharing in the suffering of Christ is the wording that Peter and Paul use Mm -hmm. uh, separately of each other, but the same sort of concept that when we are in pain, we're able to meet more intimately with Christ in his pain. And that that's how we not only become more like him, but that's how we commune with him more closely. I I think that's a model for how we are supposed to connect and interrelate with each other, that if we are consistently sort of 
speaking to each other in the way that many of us pray, right? Like I'm, I, I might tell you, God, that like, please help me with this thing, but it's definitely a censored down version where we don't come in there like, how dare you? How dare you do this? How dare you let that would just be sacrilege. Like we have to give him our water down. It's totally cool if you don't, but it would be kind of nice if maybe you could help my aunt Susie. Like everything's this very arm's length layer of relating, Yes. And I think we're doing the same thing with each other. Mm-hmm. We we plan to someday tell you about this struggle once we've figured out the reasons or the purpose, once it's wrapped up and we can say, I, you know, I I see so many churches where like people are very proud that they've got somebody in their pews that they're like, yes, yeah, so-and-so used to be an addict. And I want to say, but were they here like an active membership? while they were an addict, because more often than not, it's, you know, they found Jesus and they came and, and they've been here for 10 years and we didn't actually know them when they were addicted. We know them at that (laughs) tail end, right? Like they came to us and we pulled them out of that. And that's been their journey ever since. And that's why we talk about it, but we're certainly not going to tell you about the person in the back pew who's so clearly struggling with addiction right now. Um, That's sort of a private thing and we don't air our dirty laundry in public. Like that's the weird dichotomy that I wish the church could break out of, of recognizing that those present tense testimonies play a vital role in the church being the church. And as Mm -hmm. long as we're holding each other at arm's length and talking about those things that happened in our past, but they're all good now because Jesus... We're setting up these systems in which if you don't get an answer like that, or if you don't have an answer like that yet, you don't really have a place here because you've never seen that modeled. You've mm-hmm. only seen stories of triumphalism and Jesus fixed it, so it's all good now. And when that's not your story, you're left going, is there something wrong with me? Am I not doing it right? Or am I just not worth it enough for God to come in and, and give me that? If we're not willing to step up and say, this is what it looks like to be people in process together, then we're not actually welcoming everybody. Mm -hmm. We're not actually setting a table where people who don't have answers can come. And if there's anything that chronic illness and disability have taught me is that for some people, those answers may never come on this side of eternity. And some of us are walking around with that awareness constantly that this may never get fixed. And it makes us a little bit, it it gives us a lot of trepidation of revealing our full selves to our faith community, because we know once we do that expectation is going to come of, but when are we going to see God show up in this and how, and I can't wait for that. You know, God's already in this. God's in this right now, and I need a forum to be able to share that honestly, or we're never going to be able to connect in an intimate way, the way the church is really designed to function. Mm, wow. Come on. That is so good. Uh, yes. I'm just willing to say a lot of stuff right now because I'm still very much on the painkillers from, you know, this kidney infection. <laughs> so I'm oh. like, here, let me just say a lot of things with no filter. And I'm going to listen back to this later and be like, I don't remember saying any of that. Oh, <laughs> but this wow, is that's fabulous. Good. No. Okay. I have, here's, so here's a question and feel free to, to dodge this if you're like, I don't know what to say. In my community, especially there, there are in the tradition that I've been raised in, 
there are a lot of elements of the word of faith, name it and claim it, theology. Many of us maybe have moved past that, but there are aspects in our kind of theological DNA that that are hard to excavate. Mm-hmm. And so for, for I, I know from talking to people near and dear to me that coming to the place of of admitting maybe I'm stuck with this. Maybe this is not going away. That they can't do that. It feels too right. too dangerous because their whole faith framework, their whole relationship with God is built on like, no, don't claim that. Don't name that over yourself. You know, yeah. speak out the truth of your heavenly reality, all that kind of stuff. And and I, I yeah, it's complicated. But my, my I, I don't know how to help some of these people when it feels to them like if I actually get honest with my position, I may be losing my last chance for healing mm. because my whole framework of how I relate to God is this way. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know how these people feel exactly, but from my perspective, they seem to be trapped in a double bind, never able to be wholly honest with what they're facing because they may then lose God in the process. I can relate a little bit with that fear, even though I didn't explicitly grow up in a word of faith context. That was always the fear in the back of my mind was that if I fully embraced that this may be my life, that this may be my body, that this may not be something I was going to come back from, that that might be the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That, right. well, now now you don't have enough faith to be healed because you exactly. thought that. And so round and around it goes. So just in case, just in case this how God works, should probably avoid being too honest with him. Yeah, that I can totally relate with that fear. Part of the reason my book is titled The, the, the View from Rock Bottom is I think sometimes this is one of those things where I don't have a formulaic answer for how to defeat that framework of thinking. For many of us, it's got to be experiential. It has to come at at rock bottom. It's not, you know, I tell the story in the book a few times from a few different angles of when I had my seventh miscarriage um, and how it brought me to a literal rock bottom place on my bathroom floor. And I remember very distinctly just sort of laying on this old sticky linoleum floor that the more I cried, the stickier and weirder it got. And you're basically peeling floor from your face. And it it was ugly. It was just an ugly place all the way around. Um, And I I think it's important, again, to to put skin on these stories, right? That I I think that's a vital part of the story, that it was ugly and uncomfortable. And I was, I was literally bleeding and crying and sobbing. And like, there's nothing pretty about this story. This isn't some triumphalist testimony where I can get up and say, isn't it great? This was this miracle moment. And I had this powerful experience at the time. It certainly didn't feel like a powerful experience. It felt like literal hell. It it felt like the, the worst possible place I could imagine. It was rock bottom. And yet getting to that place was the catalyst that it took for me to finally take the mask off with God and say some things that 
I'll be honest, the version that appears in the book of what I said is censored because my Christian publisher would not let me say anything remotely close to what actually came out on that floor. So if you thought that was sacrilegious, boy, you should hear what actually came out of my mouth. It was far more impassioned than that and had a lot more four-letter words because I was done. I had finally hit the limits of my own ability to fake it with God. Mm. I was done. I wasn't having it anymore. And the hardest question for me to answer from people in response to this book or in interviews like these is, so why didn't you walk away from church? Or, you know, what made you stay? Or what what helped you hold on to that perspective and hold on to your faith? And the reality is, I don't have a good answer for that question. Mm-hmm. Because the biggest catalyst in my faith and the thing that led me to write this book and do this work and find this new, deeper, more intimate relationship with God wasn't something that I can like teach you steps for. It was literally the bottom fell out and there was nothing left. And I laid on the floor and screamed profanities at God. And somehow he didn't leave. Mm. He was still there. I felt completely held. And I, I don't like, it's a supernatural experience for which I do not have a good logical or scientific explanation. He was still there No lightning bolts came out. There was no falling out. There was no bridge too far. There was no, you can't come back from this moment. I woke up the next day and it was the same faith I had had the day before, but something had clicked because there was a new level of honesty and intimacy that I had never had with him before. And as horrible as everything felt and as much as exactly zero of the problems I had laid before him the day before had been solved in any way, my baby was still dead. That wasn't fixed. We were still unemployed. We were still going to lose our house. All of it was still there. Somehow, it felt very different knowing that something had changed and I was actually going to be able to do all of this with him now, Mm. honestly, and open myself up to an experience so different from anything that I thought was possible and definitely wasn't anything I had planned on or even knew that I wanted or needed. And I don't think I knew what it was going to look like that day or what I was even looking forward to or why I was even hopeful. But somehow I was strangely hopeful that things would be different even if things wouldn't be different, right? Mm. My baby wasn't magically brought back to life. We didn't get a magic check that fell out of the sky to pay our mortgage for exactly enough because we had tithed it or whatever. Like Things weren't different in that way, but they were so different in a supernatural way that I really can't explain. Mm. And so honestly... I'd love to connect those dots for people that aren't there yet. And that was part of my hope in writing the book is that maybe somebody will be able to see it and have it click just from relating to someone else's story. But I think for many of us, it's an experiential thing that you can't really create and you wouldn't want to. Nobody wants rock bottom. I am not ever going to be that podcast guest that goes, and I'm just so glad that seven of my babies died and that I got Lyme because I learned this valuable lesson and I just love my life as an author now. And it's so great. Yay, Jesus. Like, that's not my story. If I could go back and change it, I'm sorry. I still would. 
I still would. But what's different is I have the ability to say that now and know that that is not a knock on my faith. That is not a knock on my love for God or my relationship with him. That is not a negative in the heavenly ledger that's deciding whether or not I get healed someday. That's just the truth. Mm -hmm. And there's never anything wrong with sharing the truth. Amen. Stephanie, would you be willing to pray for us? Oh, good. Put me on the spot. Why don't you? (laughs) Um, I would be happy to. Um, And again, can I just say thank you so much for the way you modeled not just passing the mic and giving somebody an opportunity to share from a really different perspective, but what it looks like to respond to that in real time, in real uncomfortable ways. I'm still just really moved and really... Like, I just don't know how to respond to it entirely. I'll be honest. I'm almost I'm almost uncomfortable, right? It almost feels like new frontier of, okay, so this is what it looks like. And what would the next steps be after this? Because I've experienced it so little, I don't really know. So thank you. I'm excited to see what it could look like if we saw more of these kinds of conversations happening going forward. Oh, you're welcome. I'm... I'm just honored to <laughs> to be here and to learn. Thank you. God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the show and the opportunity to have a conversation like this full of nuance and mystery and even confusion. Thank you for the things that don't make sense. Thank you for the times that I know that you are bigger than human comprehension or human creation because it doesn't all make sense and it doesn't all connect in the ways that we would come to expect. I would pray that somehow this conversation will reach the listeners that need to hear what's been modeled here the need to hear what it looks like to lead out in repentance and lament and to build real bridges with people whose perspective looks different than theirs. Uh, I pray that in the, the coming week after people have heard this show, that they would find themselves reflecting back on things that were said in this conversation and that would open up a whole new level of intimacy in the way that they connect with you and in the way that they connect with the people around them. We love you, Lord. Thank you again for all that you've done and the way that you've created us so perfectly and so whole in your perfect image. Amen. 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 Thank you, Stephanie, for being on the show. What a privilege it was to host her. Folks, uh, I want you to go to JonathanPuddle.com, click on the podcast link, or just check the show notes in, in your uh, in your podcast app of choice. You can order Stephanie's book, The View from Rock Bottom. There's a link there. If you click that one, it will take you straight to Amazon, uh, and I'll get some affiliate sales on that. But yeah, go support Stephanie. Follow her on social media. She's Steph Tate Writes on Twitter. Stephanie Tate Writes on Instagram, Facebook. Go find her, support her work, uh, and jump on her Patreon as well. She's got a Patreon where she's offering uh, some really cool behind-the-scenes exclusive stuff to her supporters. I am a supporter, uh, so you guys should definitely consider jumping in there and supporting what she's doing. Thanks so much for being here, listening to the show this week. More exciting guests coming next week. And if you've missed any recent episodes, make sure you go back and have a listen. I've had John Mark McMillan on the show recently, Morgan Harper Nichols. It's been a wild ride. 
God bless you guys. Have a great week.